Hello and welcome to today's episode of Elixir Mix. As always, I am joined by our fabulous panel of co-hosts. We have Bruce Tate. Hi. Hey, Bruce. We've got Lars Vickman. Howdy. Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Steven Nunez. Hello. And today's very special guest, we have Phil Toland, who is an Elixir engineer at Pepsi. Welcome, Phil. Thanks. Glad you could join us. So we've got lots of great questions for you to get through today. But first, I would love for you to just introduce yourself a little bit, maybe tell us a little bit about what brought you to the Elixir community. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So I jumped into to Rails pretty early on back in about 05. And I went to RailsConf one year and it was right after Dave Thomas had published the Erlang book from Joe. And Dave was running around the halls, you know, evangelizing this new book. And so I, I was like, hey, this looks cool. So I bought it and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And at the company I was working on at the time, we had a problem that just seemed like a great fit for Erlang. So I was like, hey, can we, can we try this? So I guess it was about 2007. I really started getting into Erlang seriously. I've only been at PepsiCo for about three months before I came to PepsiCo, I was working for a startup. And I uh, actually, they came looking for the founder came looking for me because he saw me speak at uh, Erling Factory in 2012. And he's like, you know, you have the kind of skills I want, or hopefully know somebody who does. And I was looking for a change at the time. And I was like, hey, tell me more. And so I came on, we were using Erlang there. And that was 2015. And then I think it was in 2016, we started doing some major refactoring of the application. And I was like, you know, we're doing things like the hard way because we're doing a lot of string processing. We're doing you know, some web API stuff. And it said, I said, you know, this, this is, we're doing things the hard way. And I started taking a look at Elixir and started rewriting pieces of it in Elixir. This is the fun things you can do when you work for a startup. Nobody's going to tell you no. So I started rewriting bits of an Elixir. And the more I did, the more I liked it. And there was one other backend developer who was working with me. And uh, I said, what do you think about this? Asking for permission in, or forgiveness instead of permission, right? <laughs> He's like, hey, this is, you know, like this looks great. And then by a year later, we had converted the entire application to Elixir and really never looked back. It was the choice for us. And so when that company folded due to all of the pandemic stuff, I started looking around and, and I heard that PepsiCo was hiring. And I was like, what? Pepsi? Really? But it turns out they have a large Elixir shop and there's a lot of really cool people work there. There's some cool stuff to work on. And so that's what I'm doing now. Very cool. Yeah, I think we're definitely eager to hear more about what PepsiCo is doing with Elixir. But before we get into that, I want to kind of drill into what you're sharing of your experience. I feel like I've talked to so many people that came to Elixir, honestly, more often than not from the Ruby community, and then maybe dabbled in a little bit of Erlang, like somewhere downstream of having made that decision. But you're someone that came from, you know, working with Erlang professionally and in production and then reached for Elixir, it sounds like, because you felt it was a better fit for a web app. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I'm kind of a collector of languages. Like I'm I'm a learner and I like to just dive in and, and figure out how different languages do things. I feel like it really is a great way to, to better yourself as a software developer is to, you know, just learn a ton of different languages and learn a ton of different approaches. And the sort of downside is that of that is people are rarely willing to pay you to build something in this strange language nobody's ever heard of. But when, you know, when I ran into Erlang, it really sort of resonated with me. And I got to say, like people complain about the Erlang syntax. I actually quite like it. I think it's nice. But there are some things that are just harder than they need to be 
in Erlang and Elixir addresses that problem very nicely. And so you end up in, with this ability to build your applications with the power of the beam, but with a language that sort of allows you to do those, those things a little bit easier. So in some ways it's, you know, everyone wants to talk about syntax, but it's not really about syntax, right? It's the Erlang sy syntax is beautiful if you come from Prolog, right? Or, mm -hmm. <laughs> or something similar, right? But, but it's also about abstractions, right? It's about, you know, having these tiny little, it was a lover of languages, you know, that the pipe kind of came from one of the MLs and, you know, the macro syntax came from the, you know, the closure of that community and the iterities and some of the math behind the streams came from Haskell and on and on. So what have you seen in Elixir that really strikes you, that captures you as a lover of languages? You know, I think there's a lot of, of sort of aesthetic preference in this. And I really was drawn to Ruby because of just the way the code read and it flowed. And I get that same same sense with, with Elixir. I mean, and that's obviously not a mistake, right? Or not a coincidence. I think the thing about Erlang is, you know, while the syntax is great, it's missing a lot of really important abstractions for, for doing a lot of the sort of things that we do every day. Like you can absolutely talk to a database with Erlang, but it, it's not anywhere near as smooth as if you're doing it with Ecto, right? And, you know, and you can do string processing, but it's gonna, it's gonna be hairy at some point. And, you know, Elixir makes that much easier. And, I don't, you know, I think Erlang could address those problems with some better syntax in some areas, but it just, it doesn't seem to be a priority for the, for the Erlang team. And I totally get that, which is fine because we have Elixir. So, you know, part of what you're saying is that the abstractions that, that you use to, to put things together and that make it easy to package and document and things like that all improve things significantly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned at your previous company that it was a originally an Erlang app and then you migrated to Elixir. Was this like a microservice that you replaced kind of like one service at a time with Elixir or did you have kind of like Elixir and Erlang running in the same code base and being deployed together? And what did that interop story look like? So the, the application was initially built around Mongoose IM and that was sort of a decision that was made before I joined the company to do that. And the thinking there was, well, you know, we need presence and messaging and Mongoose does that, which it, it does and it doesn't well, but it's kind of like a sledgehammer, right? Like we could have gotten, we could have got by with, with a little jeweler's hammer, but instead we had a sledgehammer. So what I did was, you know, everything was, was written in Erlang and I started rewriting the business logic, the stuff that's sort of set between the API and Mongoose in Elixir, because that was a lot of the stuff that was, you know, doing the database interactions and that sort of thing. And so we were running with both Erlang and Elixir in that code base until we eventually just rewrote the messaging in the presence in Elixir and dropped Mongoose IM. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I haven't heard a story like that. So it's an interesting one. I like it. I mean, it's nice because, you know, when you, you can create an umbrella app and you can drop all of your Erlang into one application and drop your Elixir into another application and everything just sort of happens the way it should. So switching gears to PepsiCo, mm -hmm. you said you started recently and that there was an existing large Elixir code base there already. Do you know how PepsiCo started using Elixir? How long ago it was? What that story kind of looks like? So I don't know all of the details. That decision is about two, two and a half years old. Jason Pertel is responsible for that. And he's given some talks on specifically that. So if you just F-E-R-T-E-L search, search his name, and he can he can give that whole story much better than I can. The way I understand it is he had written an application for Pepsi as a contractor and written it in Elixir. And they liked it and brought it in-house and, and hired him to maintain it. And there was just no reason he had written that in Elixir. And there was just no reason to do anything different. But like I said, he can he can tell that story much better. 
true. No, I can't. We'll have to bring them on. That's good to hear, especially for like larger companies adopting Elixir. I think that's a good thing and definitely a solid move for the ecosystem. And it's fun to see the the stories about, gosh, we got this. We never really considered this, but we got a little taste and and we we had to have more, right? Because that's, you know, that's kind of the folklore about Erlang. Right. That and, and Elixir too, really, that a lot of the value that you get out of Elixir, you don't really know until you're pretty far into it. Right. Like this, this OTP stuff and all the benefits. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Elixir is one of those languages that sells itself most of the time. Right. Like you, you get in there as long as you're willing to jump in and use it a little bit, you get far enough in and you're like, wow, this is there's a lot. There's a lot of great stuff going on here. Yeah, so there was a Twitter post that I made last week that got just a lot of interest. And, and my observation was that good languages know what they want to be, right? And and one of the things about Elixir is that it knows it wants to be an approachable first functional language, right? It also knows it wants to grab the benefits of, of the Erlang ecosystem. And it wants to grab the benefits of a bootstrap language, and that's the closure macros. And, and so it's almost like Jose you know, took his early attempts and, you know, learned from that and had the discipline to slide it aside, but then said, okay, so these are the things that we have to have. And as you get into Elixir, you start to see all these tiny little decisions that stack up, you know, one right decision after another. I'm kind of in awe. It's great. And I recently read a book called How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley. But what's amazing, his thesis in that book is that we get the best things not from people just out of the blue inventing something wonderful, but through this, through practitioners who are constantly evolving the state of the art slowly and, and assuredly. And I think that's that's exactly what happened with Elixir, right? You didn't have a committee sitting in an ivory tower somewhere saying, well, the best language would have this, this, and this, and this, right? It's this accumulated experience from languages like Erlang and Lisp and pretty much everything else out there. And you get someone who is, you know, obviously very sharp and very attentive who can pull all of those things together in something like Elixir. Yeah, I like that point a lot. I mean, I think I think that's sort of the benefit of coming out later, you know, like building a language. It's kind of, Elixir is a bit of a cheat, right? Because it, it came out later, but it's built on something that's been around forever. But you get to learn about like the importance of like dependency management and like centralized packages and, you know, having good tools built in, right? Taking concepts like having Rake, like or inspired by Rake and then having Mix be this like built-in thing. It was a really, really good idea. Uh, a rather really good idea that came out of just the time that it came out of. I don't know why newer language, other newer languages kind of like don't learn from the past. I'm looking at you go, but shot, shots fired. But I think Elixir does it really, really well. Yeah, I mean, every now and then you get you get a few languages that get it right, right? Like I think that Clojure on top of the Java ecosystem is one of those. And and you know, Toland, you're sorry, edit. <laughs> Philip, I know you, but I look down, I see Toland first, right? So edit right there. So Philip, your point about really being something that that can be distilled you know built on something that already exists that leads to something greater is such a good one to me you know i I think that when you look at some of the new languages that are coming out like go and rust and they're building sort of from the ground up and i think elixir really benefits from having that foundation of the beam and erlang to build on top of but what's also really impressive is how much elixir has improved the erlang ecosystem right so you know now we have hex packages right and you have access to a lot of libraries that are written in elixir that you 
can use from Erlang that didn't exist before. And that kind of cross-pollination is also, I think, a really good thing for the community. I completely agree with that concept. And I would add things like abstractions, like probably the Elixir ecosystem was what pushed maps eventually into the Erlang language. And then there's protocols, and then there's an emphasis on streams. And then there's you know not just the comprehensions, but the four comprehensions. And then the tiny decisions, like move the argument related to the types of a module first. And then when you get that, then you get kind of these tiny little things that act like reducers everywhere and composer for pipes, and they can be fed into OTP engines. And, and all of these things build beautifully on the foundation and kind of leave that alone and add a layer and a layer. It was, as Jose always says, ruse its turtles all the way down. <laughs> and I love that. In preparation for this show, I looked at your talk from the previous LixirConf about Kubernetes. I thought it was a really good introduction to Kubernetes and why you might want to use it. Just overall, a very good good primer on it. Now we're approximately one ElixirConf later. Have your thoughts on like Kubernetes or how you want to tackle deployment changed at all in this time? Well, thanks for the compliment. I've gotten a lot of good feedback about that talk, which is very gratifying to me because that did not come together until like right before I gave it. So I was sitting there editing like right up until the moment I got up and delivered the talk, which I wish I could say that it usually doesn't happen that way, but I think it does. One of the things that was challenging for that talk was figuring out what I wanted to say, because it's kind of a, a big topic. And originally I was going to sort of almost do a tutorial on how I deploy the application to to Kubernetes. And I just realized I didn't have enough time for that. <laughs> and, and I think probably what more people were interested in is sort of the, the concepts and the abstractions and maybe given, given a little encouragement to look into it because it does have this reputation of being something that is complicated and difficult. All of that having been said, I don't think that anything I said in that talk has really changed. I don't think I've changed my mind about anything. We ran the the application on pretty much that exact same architecture right up until the company folded. And it and really my whole motivation for moving to Kubernetes in the first place was that we had a sort of traditional, you know, VM deployment architecture and it was just too much work. There was only two of us to write the back end code, maintain the back end, handle updates, patches, and all that sort of thing. And I wanted something that was going to take care of itself, more or less. And that's exactly what we got. So you're just saying that the talk was very fresh when you gave it. It was... Yes, it was very fresh. It hadn't gone stale at all, which I think is... It's admirable. So I was going to ask if you have any war stories about Kubernetes and uh, running that sort of DevOps infrastructure along with Elixir and the Beam, but it sounds like you had pretty smooth sailing. Is that is that fair to say, or was there some something so, to share on that? I do have a, a story to share, and this is this is sort of both. I think a story about doing something incredibly boneheaded, and but then having the right kind of automation so you can recover from it. I was actually I was traveling. I was staying at my in-laws' house and working remotely, and we were using. Tectonic at the time. And it stores a bunch of configuration in an S3 bucket with a weird name. And I was going through cleaning up stuff. And I was like, what is this giant S3 bucket with all this random stuff in it? So I deleted it and the entire cluster went down. And, and of course, like I'm not at my desk. I'm sitting at my, you know, father-in-law's kitchen table. And I'm like, oh, whoops. But because I had all this automation, I just ran the Terraform scripts again and it recreated almost everything. There were a few things I had to go in and, and tidy up by hand, but I was able to get everything back up and running very
very quickly. So I guess the moral of the story is don't delete weird S3 buckets and make sure your automation is good. I'm getting very some good. serious flashbacks to almost the exact same story. Last year at the tail end of ElixirConf, actually, I was flying back to New York from Denver and I was trying to catch up on some work. And this was right when we were kind of transitioning all our infrastructure to be orchestrated in AWS by Terraform. And I was waiting to board my plane. And for whatever reason, I thought this is a great time for me to actually apply these Terraform changes. <laughs> and I did. And what I did by accident is wipe out every single secret and this particular bucket. And while I'm like, have one ear out for them to call my, you know, boarding group, I'm like reverse engineering all of the secret URLs because they, they're they still there. They're not gone yet. And like, undeleting them. But yeah, similarly, like with Terraform, yes, it allowed me to make a horrible mistake. But given that it was all that config as code, like bringing everything back up online in the nick of time was possible. Uh, stories like that make look like uh, deploying on a Friday is not so bad. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's like taking the deploy on a Friday and going Yeah, over deploy from extreme. the airport. Yeah. Even worse, it's deploying on a Friday, then start drinking and then figure out <laughs> that I've made a terrible mistake. Yes. When yeah, I, I imagine that story, I'm imagining. So I've been like, well, that was great. Just close this bit yeah. of thing and just get on my plane four hours later. The world's on fire. Yeah. Thank and God I realized Mental acuity. <laughs> Actually, I feel like I have a historical trend of making horrible mistakes the eve of Elixir conferences. <laughs> but I feel like my other like horror story that I share also happened, I think, the day before MPEX, maybe three years ago. And I was actually speaking that day and I ended up, I'm not even sure like if it's okay for me to say what I did. I overpaid, overdistributed our customers during a monthly payment plan uh, process. And I won't say by how much and we were able to recover it all, but it was one of those like deploying a Friday's day before a conference, like real quick, just, you know, put out the fires of the world. Is that just the case of like conference driven and development or leaking <laughs> into into proper work because you take your enthusiasm for for whatever you're doing for the conference and try to apply that energy to the serious work that's that sounds dangerous yeah i feel like there's might be something to that though it's fun to hear stories about your heroes and you know you know sophie I kind of love the work that you do, but it's fun to hear those stories about, <laughs> I fall on my face too. <laughs> you know, yeah. Next time hard... we talk when we're not recorded, I'll tell you exactly by how much I overpaid those customers. I'm not sure I want to know. It's bad. Turning back to Kubernetes for a bit, could you kind of deep dive into kind of like the technical bits of how you were de deploying to Kubernetes? We're using Helm charts. Did you, did you guys just write your own kind of YAML manifests? Were you leveraging distributed Elixir at all via like Horde or Swarm? Or was it kind of just like a traditional three-tier app? So we wrote all of our manifests by hand and used Kubernetes deploy gem to actually push it out onto the cluster, which the Kubernetes deploy gem is good stuff. That worked really well for us. Our application, we did quite a bit of communication in between the, the cluster nodes, handing off transactions and things like that. And we used libcluster to sort of manage that connection between each of the Elixir nodes. And then we did eventually add Swarm, I think it was last year or maybe year before. But we did ev eventually add Swarm to handle, we were doing a location-based app. So as users were uploading their location, we wanted to make sure that it was 
a single process that was processing their location so that we could process them in order. Because if you, you know, send a person a notification and say, you're home, and then turn around and send it a little bit later and say, you're not, right? Like that's, we need to make sure those happen in order. So we used Swarm for that. It worked out pretty well. We were looking at moving to Horde earlier this year before the, the company folded. And that was, that was mostly a lot of my uh, coworker, Bernie, looking into those things. We used, you know, just sort of standard Kubernetes deployment but we did have a custom ingress controller so that we could use Amazon ALBs instead of ELBs. Because if you create a load balancer on AWS in Kubernetes, by default, it creates an ELB. And there was actually some work within Kubernetes to allow you to specify that you want an ALB instead. And I'm, I'm not sure where that is. Last I looked, it was not ready to land yet. So we were just using a custom ingress controller, and then we would use Terraform to create the ALBs. And then we were using Vault for all of our secrets. But other than that, it was, I mean, it was like pretty straightforward, right? We just had our Elixir pods and, you know, of course the load balancer to manage it, some secrets. Yeah, so my experience as well. Yeah, Swarm and, and LibCluster paired together work quite nicely, especially if you use like the, the Kubernetes, what's the DNS strategy or like the Kubernetes API strategy? I can't remember which one it is. But, yeah, it's the uh, DNS strategy. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's like, it's a pretty complex problem. But then once you plug these, you know, several pieces together, it just kind of works. And you're you're amazed that you have cluster-wide singleton processes and, you know, they get restarted no problem and they, you know, shift the pods when you need them. It's, it's all quite amazing. And it really changes your outlook on troubleshooting, right? So if you have a problem with a pod, you know, once you're on Kubernetes, your first thought is kind of like, well, I'm just going to kill that pod and see what happens, right? If the problem keeps happening, then I know I need to look into it, but maybe it's just cosmic rays or something. You know, and if we had a problem with one of our worker nodes, one of the, you know, AWS VMs, you know, we're just like, oh, we'll just kill that and let the uh, autoscaling group recreate it, right? It really fundamentally changes your, your approach to troubleshooting. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Groxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. Yeah, for sure. And especially when they're clustered. I mean, once you open up an IEX session in one, you pretty much have access to you know everything else that's going on across the the cluster. And you, it's as if you're you're just debugging one instance. When in essence, it could be you know n instances of pods running. So that's some pretty cool stuff. Shifting away from Kubernetes uh, and kind of deep diving into more of uh, you know Elixir and Erlang goodies. What are some of your favorite things that are built into OTP that you kind of wish more Elixirists would leverage day in and day out? Hmm, it's interesting. I think one of the beauties of the Beam platform is that the, the real goodies are sort of just baked into the cake, right? Like it's the lightweight processes, which leads you to this sort of wonderfully carefree error handling strategy of let it crash. And it leads you to concurrency and, hey, I'll just spin up a process. It's no big deal. And that's just in the language. But I do think, especially developers who haven't worked on Erlang, are a little shy of processes because 
you know, when you're working in other languages, if you're going to spin up a thread or fork or something like that, that's a fairly, you know, you're opening up a can of worms, right? Whereas the Elixir lightweight processes, they just do what you want them to do. You don't have to deal with, usually you don't have to deal with like deadlocks and you don't have to handle semaphores or any of that stuff, right? And that was one of the things that was challenging for me when I first started using Erlang was this idea of like, oh, I can just fire up another process. It's fine, right? Like, okay, I get it. It's a lightweight process, right, right. But I'm still not going to start too many of them. And then, then you start starting tens of thousands and you realize that everything is okay. The world hasn't ended. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah, I definitely, definitely share that sentiment. In a past life, I was doing a lot of Java for, for a few years. And yeah, the same exact sentiment where it's like, don't want to fork a process here. Or I don't have to worry about setting up like a mutex. I don't want to have deadlock and all these problems. And then you started like a simple gen server. And you know, while some people may look at that gen server and say, hey, you, you got this bottleneck because it could only process one thing at a time. You're like, on the other hand, I also have some guarantees here that my operations are atomic in my critical sections. And it's like, that's not, I mean, the bottleneck is not really a bug. It's more of a feature and you just need to, to worry about working around it. But yeah, shifting, like you said, shifting away from languages where you have to be really cautious about starting up a process is definitely important. And like, once you have a grasp on that, I feel like everything else kind of falls into place uh, on the beam. It really is a fundamental paradigm shift, right? And, and I think that's one of the, I mentioned earlier, right? I just love to collect languages. I think that is what the really important thing that I took away from Erlang and by extension Elixir is this idea of cheap lightweight processes that can be monitored and that just bail out when things get too bad, right? That's, that's sort of a game-changing concept. It's interesting to me how difficult it is for new Ruby developers to get the concept of OTP. And I have a theory about that, right? So it's really stunningly simple to have this these two dimensions, right? Like one is a message loop and the other is receives, right? So one is recursion and two is receive. So I believe that the word supervisor gets in the way when we teach, right? So if instead of saying worker and supervisor, you say worker and lifecycle management, everything gets easier, right? So I'm, ta- I'm teaching a, an Elixir OTP class to a group of Kenyans, you know, because they started showing up to a local mentoring group. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's one in the morning, that's not going to work for you, right? But when we started talking about life cycles, you know, the light light bulbs clicked and said, oh, that's what it is. And personal challenge to, to the listeners out there, if you are in IEX and you type H space capital supervisor, then, and you look at the yellow and the blue, the links and the headings, count the words that apply to the word lifecycle. You see things like start and restart and terminate and children. They're all lifecycle terms, right? And so I think that when we kind of think in those terms, then, then people can start to understand what's happening. At Pepsi, I'm kind of curious, are you guys leveraging Elixir for more internal facing apps, external apps? I'm kind of curious, like what kind of loads these services are seeing, if you're seeing any kinds of, you know, choke points or if there are any kind of patterns that you're falling back to to kind of alleviate those problems. It's by and large internal applications. The the sort of the, the big buzzword within PepsiCo right now is D2C, direct to consumer. So I think pantryshop.com is running on Elixir as well, but by and large, all of our work is, is with internal tools. And my team in, in particular, so I'm actually building a, a new team within PepsiCo to build user interfaces. So I work with data engineers and data scientists, and we're building user interfaces for these data processing and data analysis that's sort of happening on the back end. So what happens right now is somebody in the business says, I want this data sliced and diced, and they have to go talk to a data scientist. 
what my team is is doing is building out user interfaces so that those people can just go get that analysis on their own without having to to go talk to a data scientist. And there's a lot of that sort of thing, right? Like it turns out when you have a business that large that there's a lot of complicated stuff that goes on in, inside, right? And there's a lot of data you have to manage and look at and sort out and figure out. And so we're building the tools to help Pepsi do all of those things. It's actually very cool because usually when you work inside of a very large company, you think, right, like, you know, this is just a drop in the ocean, right? Like whatever whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm working on, it's just a drop. But we actually at PepsiCo e-commerce, we have the opportunity to do things that make a real difference to the company. And that's a great feeling, right? That That's why I got into this in the first place. I want to see people use my apps and I want to make their lives easier and I want to see that it makes a difference. And that's true here. So you're talking about like cross tabs or, you know, like frequency diagrams or things like that, or, or is it something else? What I'm doing is is mostly cluster analysis. So we've got some, we've got a DSA team, data scientists, and they they have built this, as far as I'm concerned, black box that does cluster analysis on customer data. And so then I'm building this UI that will kick off the job, the automated analysis job, and then render the results for the user. At least that's what I'm working on right now. I have a roadmap that is huge, like extends as far as I can tell for the next decade or so. And we're hiring, by the way. So anyone out there who is interested, PepsiCodeJobs.com and search for Elixir. That's really, really cool. So the Croxio, the next language is for the data scientists, right? So I spent a little bit of time talking to some of the, the creators of the Julia language. And so I'm kind of getting into that world a little bit and starting to understand the process of the data science and how to build those analyses and and, and how far the tools have come. My goodness. So you have this, the, these, you know, the, the data scrubbing that used to be done in Python and you can do like with C-like performance and then, you know, Julia's version of the protocol is this thing called dynamic dispatch. And you know, having those general purpose language uh, techniques build to build, you know, to build these anal analyses like, you know, like a cluster analysis or analysis or you know, even like modelings, like differential equations and automatically differentiable. It's really cool stuff. And, and you know, I find myself all the time on Coursera, like catching up on the math that I haven't had for like 30 years and, and I'm, I'm about killing myself on it. But yeah, so I kind of envy you a little bit, Phil. Data scientists are wicked sharp. You know, I, I will find myself regularly in meetings where one of our data scientists is, is, you know, sort of explaining what they're doing and why. And, you know, it's just like mind blown. And I imagine a business the size of PepsiCo e-commerce, you would never encounter data problems that isn't almost by definition a big data problem. I know so many businesses that are like run on Excel or Google Sheets and it's just like, ah, we'll manage it manually. Like we'll copy this and put this in there and CSVs out and this and that. But I imagine any volume moved in there, any number of line items, anything like that will always be a fairly large amount. So, so I can imagine that it requires automation. And as you said, if they have to go fetch a data scientist anytime they want a new report, I imagine that gets costly and uh, bottlenecked quite quickly. I was just going to say the team that I am working on directly is data products and infrastructure, right? So it's the data engineers. And they will, you know, routinely throw around things like, you know, 500 gigabytes of data from one data stream, you know, per month 
And it's just like, okay, that's a lot of data. I guess I can say I work in a big data shop now. Right. And, and Lars, you mentioned the running on a spreadsheet. That's the original functional language, right? That's uh, I, I would venture to guess that there are world economies that run <laughs> primarily on spreadsheets. And any administrative system you're building has to compete with the spreadsheets and it has to beat it or it's not worth the time. Well, yeah. And in fact, for the tool that I'm working on right now, one of the requirements is that we export the final data into Excel and PowerPoint. So, you know, they, depending on who's using it, right, they have certain use cases where they want it in Excel spreadsheet, and then they have these sort of pre-built PowerPoint templates they want us to just insert the, the data into. But, you know, like whatever they need, that's what I'm here for. I mean, that's that's business sometimes. But yeah, I haven't really considered PowerPoint as data presentation format as such. But yeah, I'm well aware how that works in business spreadsheets or PowerPoints, and it depends on who you're talking to. Curiosity, is there an Elixir package to write out some data to a Excel formatted file? There is, in fact. Yeah, I can't remember what it's called. It's, I mean, it's like EX something because everything is, right? But yeah, so we have a package for writing out the Excel data. And one of my coworkers, one of the data engineers, has actually put together some Python scripts for handling the PowerPoint, which I was grateful for because I did not want to do that. So most of the data side of things, is that running on Python or is it up to Bruce's new standard of Julia or what are you dealing with? Because I know I've been recently looking at interop between Elixir and Python quite a bit. I know that's an interesting area to touch on. And from my Python experience, I know it can be a bit of a challenge running resilient Python system. So as far as I've seen, it's mostly Python. But I, I would also you know, put the caveat on that, that I am not a data engineer. <laughs> and I don't look too closely, right? When they tell me I've made this happen, I say, great, thank you. The truth is usually that it's like C++ or something underneath a thin layer of Python. So. Yes, that's a cool thing that's happening with languages, right? I mean, so we we take for granted all of the infrastructure that comes from Erlang. And with Python, just the, the combination of Python and C++ allows them to get the performance of, of like a compiled system. But the what the Julia folks have done is built a type system so that they make it really efficient for, for extending types in either direction, right? The plug or the socket. And that can be just in time compiled. And so that they can get reasonable, like within within twice C++ and without getting out of Julia. So they also have kind of cracked the code in terms of how to break out of all the the other the other languages. So there, there's this this massive community and conferences. And so I guess the last I saw on language popularity index, they'd moved up to 30, 31 or something like that, which is stunning to me after seeing what Elixir, how, how hard the gains, gains that Elixir has made. I was kind of curious, for all this data that you're aggregating and processing, have you leveraged like any of the Elixir tooling to do that? Like I've, I've dabbled in the past with using like Broadway to transit a whole bunch of stuff out of like the Hacker News API. And I was getting some pretty amazing throughput, uh, even even though I was making like an HTTP connection to the, the Firebase API for every single item, right? So I'm kind of curious if, if Elixir fits in that data processing kind of space. So our data engineers use Airflow for that sort of thing, and they seem to quite like it. And, you know, my, my role has been pretty, pretty much restricted to handling the user interface side of things, which, you know, I'm good with. Yeah, we were, we were dabbling with Airflow as well. I was trying to convince the data scientists to write an Elixir, but I failed as well. 
or what tooling are you using for building these UIs? Because there are a few popular alternatives. Live View had a few hundred thousand different talks at ElixirConf this year, I'm pretty sure. There were at least several. And then there are a bunch of JS frameworks to choose from. The world is your oyster. What have you been working with? So traditionally within PepsiCo e-commerce, they've used Elixir for the back end and React to create a spa front end. When I came on board, I had a conversation with my boss about hiring and he He's like, so I guess the first thing we need to do is, is hire a front-end engineer. And I'm looking at the, the amount of work that we have to do and, and the timelines we have to do it in. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure that it makes sense to split the team up into like half front-end engineers and half back-end engineers when there's so much work to be done. It just didn't seem like it made sense. And especially because I'm not sure that a spa actually brings anything to the table for this type of tool. So I made the decision when we started hiring that we were just going to look for Elixir full stack developers that we would go with, you know, straight up Phoenix and, and Elixir. However, I have been looking very seriously at LiveView and I think that is going to be an important component of, of what we're building going forward. Yeah, I can definitely yeah. plus one that. I've been working with Tailwind, LiveView and eCharts, Apache eCharts, and it has just mm -hmm. been a, a beautiful experience. eCharts, tell me about that, Alex. So it's a project from Apache Foundation, and it's literally just a collection of, I think it's almost 100 visualizations. So you get like bar charts, line charts, pie charts, donut charts, oh. enter your chart of choice and they probably have it. It's pretty cool. I mean, the interop is a little goofy. I haven't like I haven't stumbled across any patterns that I'd be willing to publish and say, hey, this is how I use it. I would recommend you using it. But hopefully playing around with it more, I stumble across a pattern that I find uh, worthy of sharing with the, the greater audience. Yeah, I was about to say, Philip, that that the dashboard with straight Phoenix, but especially LiveView, is such a big win, right? It's everything pops up so fast, and you know the programming models are so clean and and well understood. One of the things that we ran into at my last company at Startup was that we did it was it was a mobile app. So we had a couple of front-end developers who were building the app, and we had a couple of back-end developers who were working on Elixir and the infrastructure and all of that. And we were constantly running into this problem where, you know, one team or the other was twiddling their thumbs, right? So we would, on the back-end, we would build out a bunch of APIs, and then it would take the front-end guys, you know, weeks or a month to get around to actually using them. And so in the meantime, you know, we're like, hey, let, let's find something to do that is productive so we can be busy. And that's not great. And I wanted to really avoid that this time around. And, you know, those pipeline stalls are really expensive in terms of development time. Yeah, serious. I think that the, the two things that are most expensive to all programming are making mistakes, especially ones that sneak out beyond development and installing, right? So if you can if you can build teams and structures that handle those things, then that, that probably says that we probably need to be doing more pair programming than we are. We probably need to be investing more in training than we are, that we probably need to be building more tooling around the mistakes that we make than we are. Not so that we can fix the blame, but so that we can fix the problems, right? Yes, I absolutely agree that that's where expense lies. I feel like we're going to have a renaissance of majestic monoliths and full uh, full stack developers now. I mean, I think that would be great. It, you know, the, the spas have, have become very popular and, you know, for good reason. The web is just a weird programming platform. But with the kind of, of responsiveness you can get with Elixir, Phoenix, and especially with LiveView, you know, I think it makes sense to step back and, and think a little bit before you just start a spa and say, well, can we do this without it? Yeah, totally agree. I think LiveView kind of reminds me of the way that people, I don't know, maybe they still do, used to talk about Rails, right? Like, 
up and running, so few people, you know, massive productivity for your small scrappy development team. And, you know, for a case where you maybe don't need the awesome power and additional complexity of a spa, or maybe even a case where you do need some of those things live, you can certainly unblock your team and keep things kind of in the family of your Phoenix application and your team of maybe more back-end oriented developers. When, when you think about the, a spa, that's a distributed application and that's what's so hard. And so what happened when the web was young was they were distributed applications too, but they were distributed applications that the infrastructure managed for us. And over time, as applications got so much more interactive, we came to a place where we were doing more of that distribution between JavaScript, so it's not just distributed, but it's mixed language distributed applications, right? We have another swing of the pendulum, right? Where where we're doing more client server focused things now, but hopefully the infrastructure will start to manage that distribution for us again so that the Chris McCorded teams get to write it instead of us. On that note, let's actually, with an eye towards wrapping up today's conversation, move on to picks. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. So we like to wrap up each episode by asking all of our panelists and our guests if they have any links or recommendations to share. Might be looks related, might not be, might be programming related, might not be. So I'm just going to round Robin us and we'll start with Steven. Any picks for us this week? Yeah. So I guess sort of a, not a particular product, but a suggestion in general. Like a lot of us have been spending time out, out, trying to spend time outside as it gets a little colder. I don't plan on stopping. I'm in the Northeast, so it can get coldish, but still try to practice spend more time outside. I just bought a travel anywhere hammock, a hammock that I'm going to just travel with in my car and eventually just find a place to be outside and throw a hammock up. I will be that weirdo. Also, any good traveling grill recommendations, I'm, I'm open to. So hit me up on Twitter or anywhere. Awesome. I actually do have a portable grill recommendation for you. And I'll add that to the, uh, <laughs> to the picks for this week. That to the show notes. Yeah, it's important. Lars, any picks for us? I think you have some. Yeah, sure. So I saw that Brian Cardarella, formerly of Dockyard, put up 2020 Elixir Ecosystem Survey raw results. So you can get the CSV of the ecosystem survey if you want to slice and dice in any fashion. I know that there is work on cleaning them up a little bit by Hugo from uh, Elixir Radar, I think. So there might be a better dump soon, but that's the, that's what we have for now. And then there was, of course, a Lumen topic. Uh, so you can go to getluma.org and find the release that was made shortly before ElixirConf and that was connected to Luke Imhoff's talk on Lumen at ElixirConf. So if you're lucky and write the right program in Erlang, you can actually compile it to a static x86 binary. And I expect a lot of interesting progress on Lumen ongoing. There's a release out, which hasn't been the case for a while. Awesome. Thanks for that. And I think we might have an Elixir Mix episode coming up where we'll dig into Lumen a little bit more. So our listeners should keep an eye out for that. Alex, any picks for us? Yeah, sure. So I got two picks for today. The first one is a Medium uh, post 
that's titled Using MJML in Elixir and Phoenix. It's written by, and hopefully I don't butcher the name, Paul Gotez. I've set up MJML in, in an Elixir app before, and it would have been nice to follow a tutorial. And for those unfamiliar, MJML is like a email templating language. So think, think of like a React or Vue set of components, but for creating emails. So definitely recommend using MJML if you're trying to make some fancy looking emails. And then my other pick is Twitter. I've started a like Elixir tip series. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll be tweeting out some tips. You guys should follow me and get your Elixir fill three days a week. Wait, someone built an abstraction layer for HTML email. It, um, apparently it, it, it course, is a it is a it's hard great. problem. <laughs> it's harder than anything else in computer science, I'm sure. Thanks, Alex. And I'm definitely excited to check out your Elixir Tips Twitter series. That sounds really cool. Bruce, any picks for us? Yes, I have three. So the first is Chris Keithley is stirring things up again. He has a great blog post called The Dangers of a Single Global Process, which is a pretty common pattern that we see in the single node web servers. And, and he kind of weaves together this tale of how that gets us in trouble. And then second, we're working on a Groxio new look that'll be out by the time this is broadcast. So by the time this is broadcast, we'll be working in the Julia language. So that, again, Groxio is learning to kind of juicing your career by learning to learn new things. And the third, the third thing, is that as we are going into this election season and a pandemic, I don't want to get political, but I want to mention the idea that there are a lot of older people that tend to work in the polls and they're vulnerable. And so I have a pick of how to become a poll worker, which you know, programmers tend to be young. So maybe this would be much appreciated by the people who typically do this work. Awesome. Thank you for that, Bruce. Phil, do you have any picks to share with us? Sure. I, I may be late to the party on this, but especially since I've been working at PepsiCo, we've been spending a lot of time on Zoom, which I think probably people can relate to. And I finally broke down and bought a pair of, of AirPods Pro with a noise canceling. And I had been putting it off because they are quite expensive, but oh man, are they worth it. It has really made my Zoom meetings much, much better. So that would be my pick. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm actually uh, talking to you guys over my AirPod Pros right now, so I can second that pick. All right. I think that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Bill. And thank you to all of our co-hosts. Hope to see you guys next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.